pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We pray that you would meet us there as we do that, that by your spirit you would lead us and guide us in all truth, that you would find us amenable, receptive, even eager to hear what you have to say and to be changed by the power of your spirit as you work your word into our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Denver, Colorado, there's an amusement park. It's Elitch Gardens. It's changed its name a couple of times, but I think it's back at Elitch Gardens. And, uh, you know, a lot of these rides are kind of uh, wild and crazy rides. And some of these rides require kind of a minimum, not kind of, but they require a minimum height to go on the rides. There was one ride they used to have called Shake, Rattle, and Roll. And the ride did exactly what the name implies. It shook you, it rattled you, and it rolled. So up and down, sideways, back and forth, it was craziness. So for some reason that still escapes my brain, I was standing in line to get on this ride with my son. And uh, behind us was a woman who had a young girl with her, who I presume was her daughter. And they got up to the entrance to the ride, and there was one of those signs. It said you must be 48 inches tall to ride this ride. Well, the little girl wasn't quite there. And the guy who was manning the little gate thing there to make sure all the rules were enforced looked mom in the eye and said to her and the little girl, she can't go on this ride. She's not tall enough. Well, little girl broke into tears. Mom broke into anger. It was not a good scene, but nonetheless... She was not tall enough to ride on that ride. In the kingdom of God, there's a similar sign. It has nothing to do with physical height. It's what I would call humility height. And that sign is lowered to the level of the smallest child. So we're going to listen this morning as Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples, the guys I affectionately call the remedial group because they had to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. I don't know if you know anybody like that at all. And we're going to hear him underscore to the disciples that all of us are called to both bring children to Jesus and to imitate the children's trust as they approach Jesus. So we're going to look in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 13 uh, through uh, 16 this morning. It's on page 1570 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along with us today. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, to the disciples, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. In verse 13, I know what many of you are thinking today. Little children, well, look around the room. How many little children are here today? Zippo, nada, kine. 
So you might be thinking right away, well, this passage really has nothing to do with me. We could even have skipped this over. But listen, there are things in here that speak to each of us, whether the little ones making noise in the hallway or not. So in verse 13, we see some right actions and some wrong actions. In verse 13, the right actions, people were bringing children to Jesus. My presumption is, it's not clear in the text, but my presumption is these are parents or family members bringing these children to Jesus. The wrong actions, the disciples getting in the way of people bringing children to Jesus. Think about it. Disciples getting in the way of people coming to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. Now this word in this passage is the same word that we encountered way, 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 way back when we were in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Can you remember that far back? Gospel of Mark chapter 4, where Jesus was, remember, in the boat on the water, and he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the, and the waves. He basically says, shut up. The disciples are in trouble again. Sometimes it's important when we make decisions about who we hang out with. I had a friend, a boyhood friend, junior high school. His name was Dougie Cash. His name was cool. Dougie was a cool guy. But literally, every time I was with Dougie, I got in trouble. Smoking Skipping school, getting picked up by the police for trespassing. I told you before about my adventure on the roof of the factory in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Dougie's, it was his idea. That's why we were there. No matter when I was with him, I got in trouble. And it seems to me sometimes the disciples are just like that. Whenever they get together, there's trouble. And in this passage, Jesus says, knock it off. His reaction is indignation. Listen, you want to get Jesus mad? Get in the way of some child's spiritual progress. Get in the way of anyone's spiritual progress. So Jesus commanded, verse 14, in the original, it's something like this. Come on, kids. His desire for children as that they come to him. And by the way, this word for children here, little children, is, is, a, is a general word that describes children of all physical ages, but it's also used sometimes to describe people who are not mature. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care where you are in your physical development. I don't care where you are in your emotional maturity. Come to me. He says. And they're also, ironically, in my view, these kids are also an example about, of how we are supposed to go to Jesus. Now, watch this. These children are not free of sin, they are born with a sin nature. And children express that sin nature as soon as they have the capacity to do it. David in Psalm 51 verse 5 said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all, that word all means, this is not a test question, it's not tough, it's not a quiz, it's all means all. 
And, you know, have you experienced, you've had experience with toddlers, right? As soon as they have the capacity to move and you've drawn boundary lines, don't go outside. Don't go into your brother's room. Stay out of the kitchen right now. What do they do? They go exactly where you've told them not to go. They don't need any training or instruction in that. They just do it. What is going on there? I'm sorry to say, but it's that manifestation of our inborn capacity to disobey. But here in this passage, Jesus highlights two qualities that make them models even for us as we approach Jesus. They were objectively, in Jesus' day, the lowest in society. Children were. They had no resume. They had nothing to offer. They were helpless to improve their own lot in life. There's an ancient uh, writing uh, on a papyrus. It's dated from the year 1 B.C., from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. It was a letter of instruction from from a husband to his wife after she had given birth. Here were the instructions. If it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. That was the status of children in that day and time. So they are uh, dependent. They are physically dependent. They are emotionally dependent. They are dependent across the entire spectrum of human need and existence. They are dependent. And Jesus points to them and says, like a little child. That's how we come to him. But they're also trusting. I am consistently amazed, and this amazement grows each time I interact with my own grandchildren. I'm consistently amazed at their capacity to receive gifts with excitement, joy. We were able to participate in a birthday gift for our grandson in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, and his dad took video of him as he walked into the room and saw it, and it was a shriek of pure joy because they are able to receive without relying on their resume. When they get birthday presents, they don't say, well, what can I do to earn this? They don't do what we adults do, right? Somebody gives us a gift, what do we say? I'm sorry, I didn't get you anything. Right, this this idea of that the relationship is transactional and it has to be uh, fixed with reciprocity. Jesus says, look at these kids. They come to me, they trust, and they're willing to receive the gift of my presence without thinking that somehow they have to earn it. That's why Jesus makes it clear in verse 15 that everyone who enters into relationship with him, everyone who enters into the kingdom of God must exhibit the same kind of absolute dependence upon him. We do not like the idea of dependence. We want to be independent. Our biggest national holiday every year is the 4th of July, where we celebrate our Independence. Independence. 
But Jesus says the kingdom of God, relationship with him, can only be entered into by people who acknowledge the word dependence. Verse 15 in the original, it says never. This is the strong, in the original language of the New Testament, this is the strongest possible way of negating something. Absolutely not. No way. Jesus says, unless you approach it from a position of willingness to depend on Christ. The way these kids did, those kids did. My son was doing a prison ministry in Texas, and he met a guy named Chris there, and he was chatting with him along the way. And Chris said to my son that he was doing fine on his own in jail. Well, ultimately, the truth is that none of us does fine on our own. And Jesus says it takes this recognition of our need to depend on him to come to him to gain entry into the kingdom of God. So in verse 16, Jesus shows us how this works with action and not just words. Biblically, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, biblically, The words for acquisition of knowledge. There's a Hebrew word, yada. There's a a Greek word, gnosko. Those are two verbs that mean to know, to acquire knowledge. But in those languages, the acquisition of knowledge were always linked to some expectation of action based on that knowledge, right? It wasn't just the accumulation of information in our brains. It was to give us wisdom to live life. So, Jesus declared his attitude of love for the children by his actions. He said, come on, kids. I hated geometry. I didn't mind algebra. Didn't mind trig. Hated geometry. Why? Because they were forever asking me to prove these theorems. You remember that, right? Proving the theorems. I said to my teacher one day, which resulted in a trip to the principal's office, I said to my teacher, if somebody else has already proved these things, then why do I have to do it again? My principal was not amused. The dictionary defines a theorem as a proposition to be proved. And and really, in geometry, uh, you had to prove it for yourself in order to have confidence that really it would work out. So here's the thing, a thing. Christianity, this belief in this Jesus, is absolutely true whether we take the time to prove it or not. But if we do prove it, we prove it primarily by our actions. We don't call ourselves a Christian if we don't act out the truth that we know. If we don't act on the beliefs that Jesus is pouring into our lives through his word, then we're not really Christians. We're kind of religious theorists, which is not what he's calling people to do in this passage. So how do we bring people to Jesus? How do we bring children to Jesus? There's no mystery here, really. For families, 
We pray, we read the Bible together, we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we have time together. Pastor Laura read the, the, the passage from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. We teach them along the way. We try to model appropriate behavior. Here's a thing. Here's a thing. You've heard this before. But Christianity is often more caught than taught, right? It's often more embraced by what people see going on in our lives, initially anyway, than the things that we say. And kids, as annoying as they can be, they're smart. They see if there's a lack of congruence between what we say and what we do. They don't phrase it that way. They don't say, Dad, I noticed a lack of congruence today between what you said and what you do. They don't say it that way, but it's clear to them if we're not consistent, right? So, modeling appropriate behavior. This is one of the reasons why, in this arena, I'm a bit of a Luddite. The day it became true that kids could have their own DVD player in the car, in the back seat, just to keep them quiet, where now, of course, everybody's on their phones, lost in their own individual universe. We had more conversations with our kids in the car. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Wow, God really painted a masterpiece over there. So we have to work hard on this. And I think there's pressure on families to be more purposeful about providing in a material sense rather than acknowledging our responsibility to provide in a spiritual sense. I think, in, our, in my case, and I know at least sometimes I didn't have my priorities right. When I was living in San Antonio, Texas, courtesy of the United States Air Force and your tax dollars, when I was living there, my son, we were attending a Southern Baptist church at the time, my son was in there, a young uh, guy kids program called the Royal Ambassadors. These guys, they went camping, they did service projects, they did all kinds of stuff. It was really, really a good, it was a great program. But my son was having a moment in time when he was struggling in school to keep his grades up. So dad, smart dad, right, thinking, all right, what he needs is a little more time to do his homework and stuff. So what I'm going to do, smart dad, is tell him he can't go to the Royal Ambassadors program or their activities. Smart dad. The guy who was orchestrating that program for the kids, he caught me after church one Sunday morning. He said, are you sure this is the right thing to do? I mean, I get that you want his grades to be as good as they can, but are you sure it's the right thing to do to minimize his spiritual development? No, it wasn't. So, and here's the thing for those of us, in most of us in this demographic. We need to keep at this as long as we have breath. No matter how old our kids get to be, this is a lifelong endeavor. I was under the impression, I may have shared this before, but I was under the impression when the kids turned 18, I was done. They were out. They were somebody else's response. They were independent. They were supposed to tend to their own things and fend 
for themselves. Get a job. But I've picked up on the fact that this parenting gig is a lifelong gig. I had done the parenting of teenagers thing once. It was way fun. And then I married Pastor Laura, and I had a remedial course. I had to do the parenting of teenagers all over again. And what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to be an ongoing model of faith development for our kids, no matter what their ages are, and for our grandkids. By the way, grandparents of granddaughters, there's a really good book series out now. It's called Bells of the Bible. It's about the women in the Bible who were models of faith and action and belief in God. Get it for your grandkids. I get no royalties from telling you to do that. It's just a good resource. I don't care how old your kids are. Because, right, they're always kids to us. They might think they're adults. Society may have mistakenly given them adult privileges. But we know they're still kids. They still need our investment in them. They still need us to communicate the love of Christ to them. They still need us to be explicit about why we do what we do. And what are churches supposed to do? Churches are supposed to affirm and support ministry to children. In verse 14, this is a call to active involvement. Just not standing, just getting out of the way is not enough. I, I was <clears throat> really impressed both this year with the Community, community vacation, vacation Bible School and last year with the Vacation Bible School we did on our own. None of the people who helped put that Vacation Bible School on actually had kids in the programs. They were all investing in somebody else's kids. Somewhere, sometimes along the way, there's this odd phenomenon that I've noticed that we, when we, th- we think when our own kids get out of a particular age group, we think we don't have responsibility for that age group anymore. And if we're members of the body of Christ, that is mistaken thinking. Because look in this passage in verse 14. The command to bring children to Jesus is addressed to the disciples. Because mom and dad had already done their part. They had already brought their kids there. And these words here, again, in the original language, are in in the present tense, which in the original language of the New Testament means it's ongoing action. You keep at it. (sighs) Pastor Laura and I are in a restaurant, and I'll hear some child make a noise, and my typical response is, why aren't they in school? And she'll say, well, they're two, so... So sometimes we get irritated at the noise they make or the messes they leave. When I was pastoring in Colorado in Woodland Park, we built a brand new building. And we had a treasurer whose heart I always loved, but he was a bit curmudgeonly, had a bit of a crusty edge. He was always concerned when there was a spill or something on the wall or something else the kids did when they were, you know, just being kids. 
And I said to him one day, Bob, I'd rather us clean up a thousand spills than clean up cobwebs because we're not ministering to children. That old African proverb, it takes a child, a village to raise a child, you know, has been co-opted, in my view, by some forces of excessive government. But it really does take a church to disciple people. Perhaps you've expressed concern over the future of young people and shaking your head at outrages you hear in the media. Listen, studies done over and over and over and over again demonstrate there's a statistical correlation between investing in kids' spiritual well-being and how they do later in life. There's a proverb that says, you know, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, sometimes there's a big gap from that child training and when they turn old and don't depart from it. I grant you that. But the promise is there that's linked to our call to be continually invested in our kids. Several years ago now, Leona Helmsley, remember that name? Billionaire, hotelier. She was called the queen of mean for the way she treated people. She passed away. She left $12 million to her dog, whose name was Trouble. I am not making this up. The courts later reduced that award you know, to just $2 million for the dog. The thing about this bequest was, in the middle of that will, while she gave $12 million to the courts, she left two of her four grandchildren out of the will entirely. That's misplaced understanding of our call to invest. My mom and dad were not wealthy monetarily. But they did several things that impacted me and my brothers. One, they modeled their commitment to family. Two, they helped with their money while they were alive. Their kind of motto was, we'll do what we can while we can. It's a motto Pastor and Laura have tried to adopt as well. And sure, they did leave some money when they passed away, and it did help. But the the last thing, and the most important thing, is I have my mom's worn-out Bible. It's a symbol of her faith in God and her trust in Christ. I got to baptize my mom when I was pastoring in Colorado. Now, that's an inheritance worth more than the $12 million the dog got. So, I guess the question this morning for us is, what, what, what are we planning to leave our loved ones? My hope is that it's a legacy of a life of vibrant faith that's been contagious. You know, my kids are adults now. My stepson's an adult now, at least in a theoretical sense of that word. But we still have conversations. We still invest in them and use the word, we're going to pray for you. When we talk to the grandkids about why we do what we do, when we talk to my grand, our grandson and granddaughter in Colorado about why we're bringing Chick-fil-A to the man standing on the street corner with a sign that says, I just need some help, they know that we do that because Jesus has impacted us in such a way that we can't help but follow him in ministry to others. We all can do that. I know many of you do do that. 
That's the kind of legacy we leave our kids or grandkids. That investment in their life of faith, that capacity for contagion. contagion. Listening to Jesus that says, come on, come to me. We can do that. You can do that. I don't care how old your kids are. Or those grandkids. You know, the grandkids are cute for a little while. Then they get older. And they're not always as cute as they used to be. But they still need our investment. Our concern. Our willingness to do what the Bible words for knowledge call us to do. To act on what we know to be true. Pray with me this morning.